This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlatan. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We have another great show for you today. We're going to talk about assessment and restoration of contents affected by smoke, water, mold, and other contaminants for episode number 516 of IAQ Radio. Kind of a timely topic here with the issues occurring off the coast of the Carolinas right now. Joining us are going to be Mike O'Donnell, Ben Umberger, and sitting in for Jay Van Dusen, who is out in storm country and is going to have to be uh, responding for folks, will be Sean Stillman. So please also visit our Facebook page and YouTube page. Leave a comment, like, or subscribe. We also have continuing education credits. You can email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And before we get started, we want to thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to report that Jack Springston in Glenhead, New York, was first to identify the Green Book's formal name as Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, September 7th, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's trivia question. Name the 19th century American cabinet maker known for incorporating a harp into his furniture designs. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guests are Mike O'Donnell. Mike has been a leader in the contents restoration field for over 40 years. He started as an apprentice at Fix Furniture Service in St. Clair, Michigan, back in 1975. He worked his way up through several Detroit area firms until he held the title of Master Craftsman and Foreman of the Finishing Department at Englanders, Inc. He was there from uh, 78 to 85. At that time, he also started training in disaster restoration and in 1988 started professional furniture services with three employees in a 1,200-square-foot facility. Over the last 28 years, Professional Furniture Services has changed its name to O'Donnell Brothers Professional Furniture Service. Along with the name change came tremendous growth. Today, they have a 130,000-square-foot plant with the state-of-the-art restoration and storage capabilities and do over a 1,000 packouts each year. O'Donnell Brothers Professional Furniture Service has become the largest independent restoration company in the United States. We also have Ben Umberger, managing partner of Carolina Conservation. As the managing partner, Ben directs the firm's national operations and handles large loss project management. Ben provides consulting to insurance carriers, ultrasonic equipment manufacturers, franchisers, contractors, trade associations, as well as other training providers within the insurance restoration industry across the U.S. and Canada. 
I'd like to go a little bit out of order here today and, and start with Ben. Ben, you're in Columbia, South Carolina. How are things looking for you and the, the crew at Carolina? And how's the weather on the coast? Uh, it's looking pretty good here. It's uh, still a little early to tell what we're going to get. Uh, a couple years ago when we had the thousand-year flood event, I think we learned a lot about what the water tables would do and the lake volume. And uh, it's been a little bit down so far this year, so we're pretty optimistic about the flooding situation, at least going into the storm. But it sounds like uh, on the coast they're starting to get a good bit of rain, uh, about a half million people out of power at this point. So. Uh, Looks like they're they're bracing for more of the same over the next couple of days, and hopefully we'll find out what's coming our way. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a big. It sounds like mostly it's going to be rain and and uh, rising water, and it looks to me like a lot of the homes, at least on the coast, are up on stilts. Is that a requirement in, for building in your area? Yeah, it looks to be pretty common. Some of the older houses a few rows back are still kind of on the ground, but a lot of people, their first level is parking or storage or, or space they know is probably going to get wet one of these days. So it looks like the storm surge, at least up in the North Carolina area last time I checked, it started to move in pretty good. Uh, and I'm guessing that's probably going to creep in a little bit more just because the terrain is so flat. Uh, but I know there's about uh, 200 people that didn't heed the evacuation warnings that they're sending crews in to try to extract some of those folks out of Topsail Beach area. So hopefully everybody stays safe up that way. Well, thanks for joining us. And, and I know you've got to be incredibly busy. We appreciate having you. Cliff, I want to turn it over to you for, for the interview. Maybe you could start with the first question. Well, I, I think what, what we should probably do is, uh, I think, did you introduce Mike O'Donnell? I'm not sure if I was on. I did, yes. Okay, perfect. Mike and Ben, I know you were having a little trouble getting in, but I did not, I forgot to mention, we also have the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog with us, Pete Consigli, and uh, we'll bring him in as time uh, dictates. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, because there's an age difference, and I guess right now I'm probably the oldest person that's here, uh, I have some kind of background information. I think I'd like to set the stage uh, a little bit. Uh, I I have a profound disappointment, you know, with the restoration industry in general. And it seems that there's an obsession for bigger, faster, and more expensive ways to blow hot air in buildings and to perform unnecessarily complicated mold remediation processes, while restoration has become a lost art. I'm real excited about today's show because from my vantage point, if there is a future in restoration, it really lies with folks like you. You know, content specialization isn't really a new concept. You know, when I entered the industry in the 1970s, Projects were often divided between two types of skill sets. One was general contractors and the other, and general contractors would prepare the structures and paint them and so on and so forth. And cleaning and restoration firms would clean and deodorize the concepts. Through RIA and its predecessors, I met the largest and most successful restorers in the United States. I had the opportunity to tour their impressive storage and cleaning facilities. I really wanted to emulate this success. I wanted to do the same thing. I guess along with these impressive facilities came very impressive overheads as well. And sadly, many of the people that I looked up to have now gone by the wayside. In our particular case, we were practical. We only did packouts when we needed to, and we were able to do the majority of our work on location. You know, with the trend towards lower quality furnishings, diminishing costs of electronics, uh, 
you know, I'm just really wondering whether it, it's the right thing to do for someone just starting out to build a contents restoration facility. And I think one of the good things is that RIA is holding uh, a couple of uh, events. One is a, uh, a forum event, and then one is a specialized training event where I'm sure that questions like this uh, are going to be answered. But in any event, let's, uh, let, let's get into our interview. I think we'll just maybe do a roundtable. It probably makes most sense, and you know, we can get both of you guys to kind of comment on, on both questions or both comment on the question. I think we should start out really with evaluation. That's probably one of the first things that you need to do in a restoration situation. So what the question is, is where, when, and how are contents evaluated for restorability? And is an effort made not to spend money packing and moving items that are a total loss or just are not worth the cost of restoration? So I guess, uh, you know, we can start with Mr. O'Donnell first. Yeah, um, the uh, the person on our staff that does it is the, the first responder, which would be the, um, the estimator uh, slash salesperson. Um, they would make a determination on, on salvageability, uh, things that are, are absolutely not going to be salvageable, like the you were talking about the modern furniture with the a lot of particle board in it, and you know with the uh, less expensive veneers and things like that, less expensive hardware. Uh, those items, once they're, once they're wet or once they're, they're smoked beyond uh, salvageability and, uh, and, and uh, value, um, there's really no sense dragging them around because you do run up the cost for the insurance company and um, not necessarily just the insurance company, but you're eating into the policy of the uh, homeowner also. So, it's, it's important that you do make those evaluations, um, you know, on site before you start uh, moving things around, moving things off site. Um, and I, I think that uh, that's, that's a really, really important part of this whole thing. It is a cost savings. And uh, the bottom line is that uh, there's, there's no sense, uh, you know, wasting, wasting money and resources and not to mention uh, space inside of your, uh, your facilities that you have, um, just storing this stuff and thinking you're going to make an extra buck because it, it really doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't play because it, it just, um, you're, you're just wasting time. Gotcha. And I appreciate the answer. Ben, would you like to comment from your perspective, which is a little bit different? Yeah, I would agree with everything Mike has said. Um, you know, I think in terms of, of an on-site evaluation, uh, we're looking for things is it going to be cost effective to deal with? Um, not just from our standpoint in terms of the overhead of, of moving all this around and the logistics involved with coming to the, answer, the conclusion that you can't do anything with it, but also in terms of setting expectations for the insured. Um, to what extent is this going to be able to be returned to pre-loss condition? And with that in mind, would they rather just non-salvage it? Uh, when we look at art and specialty contents, there's a lot of uh, inexpensive things that um, – don't justify being treated by a conservation studio. So if you get a, a painting from World Market or Bed Bath & Beyond uh, and it's got a clearance tag of $39.99 on the back, even though that's technically artwork, that doesn't really fall into our 
area of where we can do something with that from a cost effectiveness standpoint. Um, when people travel, they bring things back from overseas, and some of those are, are more tourist pieces, but they carry a pretty high sentimental value as far as the connections and the stories that people have with those items. So certainly there are times where we need to look at kind of the, the meaningfulness of those things to a homeowner and decide what can be done, and is it cheaper to restore or replace in those situations? Okay. Um, Joe, go ahead. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the inventory process. Um, can you let's start with Mike? Can you, you know, I see there, you know, people using these uh, readers, you know, and they've got barcodes and all that stuff. I'm wondering if you could describe for listeners how inventory is taken with your group. Yeah, um, we about four years ago, up until about four years ago, we did it the old-fashioned way with a three-part form and a, and a pen and just some basic knowledge of what the piece is. And uh, when we moved into our new facility, we decided we weren't going to move all this, all these items that we had without having some sort of a, a really good inventory system. And we're, we're so glad we did. Uh, we hooked up with the folks at Exactware, but there are other companies out there. And uh, we use the program. It, it, it's a, it's a inv- digital inventory uh, Tech on site is all trained to, to use these um, readers or pad iPads. Actually, is what they are. And they pull up the program. They take a picture of it. They're able to do um, uh, previous existing conditions on on it, so that you get a good uh, digital picture of it. So that you know you can uh, at a later date, if it becomes an issue, you can uh, you can defend yourself on that. Uh, plus, it gives it a barcode, which um, then tracks it through the whole the whole process of the loss. Uh, we can, you know, track it from the house and when it gets on the truck, it's, it can be tracked again. And when it comes off the truck, it can be tracked again into a, um, into an inventory, uh, space in our warehouse. And then as it moves around our warehouse, it's also being able to be tracked so that we can tell at a, at a moment's notice, you know, go onto a computer and find out exactly where that piece is. If it, that, you know, if there's a question about it or somebody wants to see a, you know, a real-time picture of it, we can do that. And it works out. It's, it's pretty amazing the way, it, the way it has worked out because uh, what used to take us a whole day if we needed, a, you know, somebody to find it by digging through stuff, uh, now it takes just uh, basically minutes and we're able to find it. And, um, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's been a, a real time saver and a, and a money saver for us. Um, so I think that most of the, the companies are going to that route, you know, with different types of, um, uh, of software, but, um, mm-hmm. most people are really getting involved in that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's one of the things that are, that I think are one of the real, uh, pluses that have, um, uh, come out in the last 10 or 10 or so years. Uh, Ben, anything you'd like to add? Uh, similar story. We, we kind of started out uh, just manually entering things into a spreadsheet and doing some photo documentation. Uh, now we try to uh, um, move, move into today's world, but we've kind of had to build our own system. So for our needs being slightly different than some of the, uh, the softwares that are out there in the restoration industry, uh, we also use barcodes and use uh, photo inventory. But uh, what's really important to us and to our clients is before we leave the home, we're able to give them a copy of that manifest everything that we have taken possession of so that when we leave, they know exactly what's leaving with us and, uh, 
I think that's important when you have multiple vendors on a job. Uh, lots of things are getting distributed out between multiple people, and nobody can really remember uh, where what goes. And uh, so for us, that's a, an important part of the service we provide is giving them just transparency on, on what we're doing, what we're taking. And then we also do uh, another inventory once things come into the studio because for us, the evaluation is really kind of done piece by piece. So we go a lot more in depth probably than other vendors would on the uh, loss related condition, the pre-existing damage that may be there and really breaking it down item by item. So um, in addition to that, that inventory, people have a real good you know, picture of what, what the assessment's going to reveal. Mike, just back to you for one second, um, just with a quick yes or no. Uh, when you leave, the, the point that Ben made about giving the customer this receipt of, for what was taken, do you typically, does your system typically do that or not? No. Okay, good. All right, uh, Joe, you want to ask the next one? Yeah, I got quick. Uh, ben, you mentioned having multiple trades, and I, I'll, if I'm not mistaken, uh, both of you just specialize in contents. You don't actually do the, the restoration work. And um, I'm, I'm curious about packing out. That can be a huge issue. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you do your own moving? I guess we'll start with Ben, then go to Mike. Um, and are there industry resources available uh, to use for training your workers on how to pack out properly? Oh, uh, yeah, great question. Um, yeah, we do everything ourselves. Um, so from a on-site standpoint, we're there with the rest of the folks working on the job. A lot of times we're first in, depending on the sensitivity of the things that are in the home and the size of the collection. Uh, so we have full-time art handlers that their only job is to go in and to wrap, pack, and uh, package all of the art, especially items that are coming out of the home. Uh, we don't do furniture. We don't really do rugs. Um, so while we do some specialty contents outside of the art, musical instruments, antique firearms, uh, some taxidermy, crystal and china, there are a lot of different packing strategies that go into packing those items. And depending on the size and depending on the sensitivity of those items, it ranges from basic soft packing or wrapping methods all the way up to full crating. Uh, and, you know, bringing in rigging to, to move chandeliers and things like that. So uh, it can differ wildly from one job to the next. Um, but I think the uh, having a good firm understanding of different packing methodologies that you can apply to different situations gives you a lot of the flexibility to tackle any problem that, that you show up and find. Um, as far as resources, uh, you know, there are a lot of contractors and adjusters that will rely on us to come in and, and pack those types of things. But uh, depending on where the loss is geographically, uh, even we will call in uh, some assistance on wrapping and packing. And, uh, we just recently called in a crating service out of Portland, Oregon to crate a job in the uh, Pacific Northwest uh, because they could get there faster and do just as good a job at handling those items. So uh, there are a lot of resources out there if you need the hands-on support. Uh, and from a training standpoint, we offer a lot of uh, uh, you know, feedback to contractors on how they can do a better job of wrapping things that are sensitive or the things that are more likely to break. Uh, and a lot of times things that are fragile aren't always expensive, but they can be really important pieces of, of what the family has. And so it's just as important that those items be taken care of as well. Mike. Mike? Yeah. Same uh, question, moving. Do you guys do it yourselves or do you subcontract it? Yeah, we, we do we do all of our own work ourselves. We have a fleet of uh, of five large trucks, you know, uh, furniture moving trucks, and uh, 
and we have uh, uh, packers and, uh, and inventory people on staff. And we have truck drivers and helpers on staff that are all trained uh, by us uh, to, um, to handle these situations. Uh, we're a full contents restoration company, so uh, we do everything from uh, packing the boxes, the dishes, and all that, and to uh, the artwork. We do have an art restoration uh, portion of our business where we can, uh, you know, do some of the things that, that uh, Ben was showing on his um, uh, on the, the slides we saw earlier. Um, I think you're going to show them later in the program, but. Um, so we get into some of that, and then we also do the restoration, the furniture restoration, reupholstery, and all that here. But in answer to your question about the boxes, um, yeah, we, we, we pack the boxes ourselves, and we, we transport them ourselves, and uh, we, we wrap and skid them up ourselves, and we, we do all the work here in our facility. Uh, everything is done by us. We, we, the, only, uh, the only thing that we, we sub out is, is electronics. Um, just a question, because you do this yourself, Mike, and you know you have your own trucks for doing it. Uh, I got a question: Are your trucks hard sided or soft sided? Uh, they're they're fiberglass sided, and they all they're all racked on the inside with slats you can tie, uh, you know, with with moving strap ties, and it's it's a regular professional uh, um, moving vehicle that's that's designed especially for us. They have the attics on them for additional space. The attic is a part over top of the cab where you can, uh, you know, store more things. And there's ways to tie things down and secure them with netting and things like that. So, um, the, yeah, the, the, the reason that I asked is uh, one time I was touring a restoration plant up in Canada. And this was a Belfour plant. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen it. Uh, the trucks were soft-sided. And they actually had a forklift. Uh, you know, you see them now, you know, trucks with you know, heavy equipment and so on and so forth. They have these little forklifts that go on the back. And they actually uh, had the ability to take vaults on location, pack the vaults on location. They had this forklift that would, uh, you know, lift them up and uh, set them on the truck. It was the first time and only time that I'd ever seen it. It was really, really a very, very slick system. And, uh, again, yeah. one of those things that had it down. Yeah, some of the guys are using that system. I know that um, uh, Jay Van Dusen out of Maryland is using that that system. Um, we we we're, we're of the old school way that uh, we like to to make sure the load is secured. You know, filling up every spot in the truck. Um, uh, my personal preference is I don't like a box inside of a box, which is kind of what the um, uh, and with the soft sides, it doesn't give it enough support on the on the on, on the the, the the um, vertical, uh, the, the height of the vehicle, because if it starts moving around in the top of that, there's not a lot to, to stop it with a with a canvas side, but uh, a fiberglass or, or a metal side will keep that stuff contained. You know, if you get into crosswinds or if you have to swerve or something like that, it will keep it nice and, uh, and secure and tight and all that. So, uh, and our, our guys are trained to, to make sure that they use up all the cubic feet in there, not just floor load things so that they shift around. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like a puzzle when you put that stuff together and when you load it, load it onto a truck because it's, uh, it's, uh, it, you can get some pretty severe damage if you don't do it properly. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, pricing and estimating and, and how you determine the costs and so on and so forth. And, 
before we do it, I just want to remind you in the audience that uh, this is an RIA affiliated show. They're a sponsor of the show and they have pretty strict guidelines in terms of antitrust. And I'm sure that you've both read them and we just want to stay within uh, those parameters. Okay. So the question I want to throw out is that, you know, the industry relies on computerized estimating programs such as Xactimate for estimating, you know, structural repair. And, and for those things, the insurance company knows uh, how many board feet of car, they know what the board foot of wood costs. They know what carpenters make per hour. They know, you know, how many uh, doors a carpenter can install in a day. They have really, really good data uh, on that. Uh, I guess what I'd like you to do is comment on the accuracy of prices in computer databases, you know, for, you know, contents restoration and even conservation, because it would seem to me, you know, ev everything's a little bit different. So I'm not sure, uh, you know, what's computerized for that. So Mike, yeah. we can start with you. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks for this question, because this is really something that um, is one of my uh, pet peeves, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, is uh, the setting of these prices, and I don't, I'm not quite sure who set them, uh, but <laughs> if, 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 you, if you know what I mean, I don't think that, uh, I think that they're, they've made up for it in certain areas, the cost of cleaning, and I'm not going to use any particular brand because they're all kind of the same, but um, when they, when they came up with their pricing for cleaning items, especially with, you know, heavy smoke and things like that, and the larger items, um, and they, they, they give a price to it. And I don't think they really thought it through very clear, very clearly because it takes a lot longer than, you know, a few minutes to just wipe something down. Right. And you're talking restoration cleaning. You're talking about, especially with like dressers and, um, and uh, uh, nightstands and things that have drawers and, and back panels and stuff like that, that you have to get behind where the, where the, the seams are. So you have to pull that all apart in order to do that. Well, in order to, to clean that properly, you're, you know, you're spending a lot of time. And when you get, uh, say, and I'm just going to throw this out there as a, as a hypothetical, but when you get $15 to, to clean a dining room table and it takes you an hour and a half to do it because you got to open it up and get into the runners and the slides and all that stuff. Uh, it's just, it's just really hard to recoup your money and then, uh, and let alone make a profit. And then, if I can interrupt you just, just for one second. Okay. In, in the old days, when we hand wrote the estimates, we had the ability to describe in great detail what we were doing with it and embellish, uh, you know, and, and, and embellish or use descriptive words that embellished what we did. So it wouldn't just be a dining room table that we were cleaning. You know, it might be, uh, an antique solid maple dining room table in the Queen Anne style and that we were going to clean it and polish it versus cleaning a wood office chair. Do you have the ability, uh, you know, to accurately describe, you know, what you're dealing with and why this piece is different and why it requires more services? Do the, does the insurance company allow you to do that and will they pay for it? Sometimes. If it's just a cleaning, like, and I say just a cleaning, um, say it's a, a light clean or a heavy or a medium clean, then they're going to go with the prices that they got. They're not going to let you um, uh, add any kind of verbiage in there that's going to, um, uh, they're going to say, well, this is the price and that, that's it. So 
Um, so that's kind of tough. When you get into some heavier smoke or anything that's got any restoration in it, um, there really aren't any price guidelines set, and I think Ben can concur with this, is that um, it's up to the restorer to you know, put the price to it because of the fact that it takes so many hours to do it and it's, um, uh, you know, different skill levels of the people that are doing the different parts of the project. So it's, it's, it's like a, a moving target, so to speak. And there's really no way for anybody to, to put that down there unless you've got years and years of experience, which, you know, we do. And I'm sure Ben does, uh, that, um, it's just, uh, you know, then you can, then you can kind of set your, your prices and, and, and really you're setting them to, at that point, a, a value, uh, a cost evaluation type price. And so if it's not worth the cost, then, then it's not, um, then they're not going to okay it. But, but one thing that they, we do as a, as a restorer in, in, in pricing is that we do set the bar, so to speak, on the cost of restoration. Because sometimes if you go in your, you know, your grandmother's basement, you see this old cabinet sitting down there. And it's a solid mahogany piece, and it's been there for 40 years, and you get a young adjuster out there who says, well, you know, I can, I can get that for 50 bucks down the road. Well, there's a difference, because in the insurance industry, it's like and kind. And so when you're, when you're talking about like and kind with these old pieces, you're talking about uh, solid wood substrates, and you're talking about... Um, uh, you know, solid wood veneers, you're talking about solid brass uh, hardware, you're talking about wood drawer slides and dovetail joints and things like that. So you're really, um, at that point, uh, you, your apples and apples turns that piece into a Hendrodon or a Baker piece, which are top level, uh, you know, items. And then so that the price goes way up on the value of those things. Now, the restoration cost is, now comes into play because if you if you set a restoration cost of X amount of dollars and it's quite a bit below the the like and kind price, then you've set the bar for the insurance company on their um, replacement cost policies because they owe for replacement costs or restoration, whichever you know at, at their discretion. So you've you've really saved some real dollars for the insurance company, and the insurance and the insureds are if they decide to total loss it or just take the, the cash payout on it, are usually pretty happy with that price. And so it's a win-win. And then if we do the work, I mean, that's even better for us because, you know, obviously we're in it to make some money too. So, Cliff, do you want to keep going on the pricing and then break for halftime after yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, Mike, I, I, back to you again. Um, do some restoration companies that, that do packouts, do they still use box pricing where there are different size boxes and it's a flat rate for everything that, that fits in that box or are they estimated each item uh, separately? Well, no, they're still using a, a box rate. And, okay. and, and quite frankly, that's, that's, that's probably the best way to do it still. Okay. Um, if you, if you started doing things, individually you're talking an astronomical number you know if you start charging for every every plate for a dollar for every plate and then whatever whatever the number would be i think i think number one you're creating a lot of extra paperwork for yourself and i don't think you're doing anybody any favors by doing that because at a certain point you're just eating up dollars now if you can do whatever is in that box and it's cost effective and I, you know whatever the price is nowadays 34 35 dollars whatever it is 
typically that that box will hold more than thirty five dollars worth of items. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a um, it's still a pretty good way of doing it. Although the inventory and the packing is a separate charge. Okay, good enough. And I guess the the final question is really third party administrators. I know that they're very active in the water damage part of the market. Uh, Mike, do you encounter them uh, a lot with what you do? No. Okay. Um, and, and and I know that's a pretty uh, pretty uh, um, cut and dried no, but. Uh, for the most part, the third-party uh, administrators, uh, um, they haven't figured out contents yet, uh, in my experience. They're, they've, they've, I've talked to a number of them, and they want to figure it out. It's just that they still haven't gotten over the fact that, that, that I think, Cliff, you said at the beginning of the program that when you first got in this industry that there was, there was contents um, um, companies, restoration companies, and there were structure restoration companies. And in my personal, humble, you know, opinion, um, never to be outspoken on the subject, by the way, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the thing that um, it has to go back to that because the, the, what the TPAs are doing is they're, 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 they're assigning all the contents jobs to, to contractors who have gotten in, in, involved with contents or have been forced to get involved in, and a lot of them don't even want to be there. They don't want to. They want to stay in their lane. They want to. They want to do their job. Uh, you know that they know how to do the structure. They know. They know that a two by four goes here, and they're going to put a two by four back there. But they sure don't know about the gold uh, trimmer on the top of a, a teacup that was Grandma's favorite. And don't mess with that because it's going to mess with your entire check at the end of the job. So uh, they they don't like it a lot. So I think that the, the until they figure that part of it out. It's going to be really hard for them to, to put any kind of contents um, uh, uh, TPA uh, program in place because it's just, just too many moving parts. Gotcha. Well, Ben, uh, any comments uh, on pricing that you'd like to add? Yeah, I think Mike made some, some great points. Uh, you know, for us, uh, we don't use any third-party pricing system. It's, it's basically just generated by, you know, our assessment of what we think the time and materials will be. Uh, there's really an art to looking at something before you've started to treat it and to go through and, and kind of look at the steps that you're going to be using and, and the process and, and trying to anticipate any of the things that are going to slow you down and be accurate with your assessment of time. Uh, we don't like to do any kind of supplemental billing on labor if we go over, so it's really important for us to be accurate. Uh, and we also use those numbers uh, to get approval from the client before we begin work. And if we tell someone there's going to be $100 worth of labor on this piece, uh, we want to be able to uh, be accurate in setting that expectation so that they make the decision to use that coverage money uh, to, to save that piece. Uh, we don't have to come back and ask for another $100. So uh, we've learned a lot over the years about how to look for red flags when we're doing the estimates and, and, and making those evaluations. Um, but it's something that I think adjusters don't understand. Um, if uh, the TPAs and adjusters still wrestle with some of the issues around contents, they're going to be wrestling with art and specialty stuff for a long, long time because 
Uh, there's a lot of education for the adjusters involved. Uh, we have to really explain what we're doing, why we're doing it, and kind of justify the value that we're bringing. Um, art and values of art, it can be so subjective. Uh, a lot of people get nervous uh, when they see some of the, uh, or get sticker shock when they see some of the estimates, uh, and they're just not confident in uh, being able to understand, is this even a cost-effective proposal? Uh, so there are a lot of uh, times where appraisers will need to get involved just to independently verify the replacement cost of items, uh, especially big ticket items that, that you know, it's going to be several thousands of dollars for a single piece. Um, and there's just not a lot of awareness in the, uh, the carrier community about art, uh, even amongst the carriers that specialize in uh, art insurance and, and schedule a lot of personal property. Uh, there are very few people on the claim side that are comfortable looking at something and making a, an assessment on whether or not something's cost effective. Uh, and they, they really are a little bit hesitant to take uh, the person who's writing the estimates, uh, you know, assessment of saying, oh, sure, yeah, this is cost effective. So uh, we have to do a lot of due diligence in our documentation and supporting, uh, supporting what we're saying. Um, and then uh, we find that once we're able to lay out some pretty good documentation and show why what we propose to do is cost effective and we get the buy-in of the homeowner who says, yes, this is important to me. I know what it's worth. Uh, I know what I paid for it. This is very reasonable. Uh, the adjusters start to feel a little bit more comfortable and uh, looking at our estimates. But um, Mike made some really good points. A lot of that stuff is true for us as well. Uh, you know, just the skill involved uh, and the types of folks that are doing the work. It's very important that um, you know, we have the right people working on the right pieces on a project because uh, there's no room for error in what we do and, and what, what Mike does. Understood. Well, I think we're going to go to halftime, Joe. Yeah, let's, uh, let's break and thank our sponsors. We'll be back with Mike O'Donnell and Ben Umberger. We're talking about the assessment and restoration of contents affected by smoke, water, mold, and other contaminants. We'll be back in 90 seconds. IAQ Radio Platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. All right, and uh, speaking of the restoration industry, we've got uh, a couple of gentlemen here who are very important in that industry and uh, working with contents and uh, got an uh, upcoming contents uh, conference coming up. We'll talk more about that at the end, but let's get back to the Z-Man and Continue with our interview. 
I think Pete had a couple of questions, so I, I gotta go to him for a minute and then we'll pick All right. up. Let's get the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog on here. Uh, Pete. Hey guys, how, how y'all doing today? Hey, I'm really enjoying the show. It's great. Uh, Mike and uh, Ben, you guys are doing a great job. So listen, I have um, a question that I'd like to throw up to both of you guys. They're kind of two different questions, but um, I'm going to give them both, and then you guys can kind of weigh in on either one or both of the questions. So my question, the thing I was listening to Mike, Mike said, you know, that they do everything besides the electronics. I'm curious why a full-service company is, is you know, is – intense and as detailed as O'Donnell Brothers wouldn't get into that. You know, uh, Cliff was really kind of a pioneer and an originator years ago in the mid-90s of kind of demystifying electronics. It used to be only two or three companies that did it. Now, most mainstream restorers do it. And in particular, what I noticed is the garment restoration guys have now gotten into the electronic cleaning. And it's my understanding that this is something that uh, their insurance clients have asked them to do. So I'd be curious why you haven't got into that, Mike. Now, before you answer, my other question kind of rolls off into Ben, and it, it has to do a little bit about the uh, kind of paralleling the, the, the growth of conservation in the industry, uh, paralleling it with how the garment restorers grew. You know, years ago when the garment restorers started, their primary customers were restoration contractors. But over time, they've become so prominent. They've done so many things. And in many ways, they've, they've uh, done a lot of uh, contents cleaning outside of the pure garment and laundry, window covering stuff, uh, better than uh, many of the restoration contractors that do. So in essence, they kind of compete to a certain degree with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that, that's the part of evolution. So the big question becomes with them, and now this question is for you, Ben, who is your customer? Because... From the garment restorers, when I talk to them, they feel they have a 50-50 split between working directly with insurance companies and then working with restoration contractors. That could be a little problematic at times. But you guys, um, and even a company like Mike, who are real big and maybe you have smaller companies subcontract, who do you guys think your customer is? Where's your loyalty? And where do you see all the potential conflicts of interest as the industry evolves more, um, kind of like the, some of the challenges the garment guys have. So, uh, Cliff, Joe, I'll turn it back to you to throw those questions up to Mike and Ben, however they'd like to address those. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Pete. Let's, Mike, let's start with you. Okay. Um, first, first of all, the, um, um, uh, the, the reason that we've never gotten into electronics is because, number one, the, uh, over the last, I don't know, probably 15, 20 years, the cost of electronics has come down so much that, you know, you can replace this stuff for a lot cheaper than you can by the hours you put into it. So a lot of the insurance companies are mandating that they don't even bother anymore. You know, they don't, don't, don't even take it off site. Don't, don't even bother to clean it. And in, in the case that they do, uh, when they, if, if they can get by with just cleaning it and that's it and then testing it, then that's, that's fine. Okay. If it's a light smoke or something like that, or, you know, maybe a, a light water intrusion into it or something, but, you know, to make sure that the circuits aren't rusted or, or smoked up or something like that, um, then, then it's okay. But when you start having to do some restoration work and some repair work on these electronics, and then, then you're, uh, you're basically setting up the fact that the warranties are now null and void. The, the manufacturers won't cover it anymore. And six months down the road, you end up paying for that TV that uh, all of a sudden went on the fritz and it may have been doing that before you even started. So 
we just decided early on that there was just not a, something in our wheelhouse that we were real comfortable with. So we, we, we've, that is one part of probably one of the only things we sub out. And, um, it's just, uh, to, to, to us, it's, you know, it's just, um, it, it's not even a lost leader. It's just not, it's not something we ever really uh, wanted to get into. Now, uh, does it mean you can't, can make money there? You can't make money there? No, it doesn't mean that at all. You could, there's companies out there that are doing very well at it. And, uh, you know, we've always been, uh, a company that, um, uh, has a philosophy of, uh, let the people who do what they do the best do the work. Um, you know, well, that's why we've never gotten into, uh, uh, you know, drying out houses or, uh, water, you know, water, uh, uh, extraction and things like that, because, you know, we can do the furniture part of it, but we, you know, and the contents part of it, and we do that very well, but the, the, the floors and the, and the ceilings and all that, that's not in our wheelhouse, and I think it dilutes us, and so, because there's a lot of other companies out there do very, very well at, at doing just that, so um, that's one, that's the reason why we never really got into the uh, electronics and things like that, so, um, and then uh, what was the second question? Well, I think the was, second question yeah. was for Ben. And, you know, I learned something here, Pete, as I normally do when talking to you. Uh, garment restorers, I'm, I'm not familiar with the uh, that being like an, an industry these days. So, Ben, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Pete's question? Sure, yeah. I, I, um, as far as who our customer is, um, you know, regardless of who it is, uh, we have to provide value, I think, to everybody involved. So uh, we don't necessarily work directly as a true subcontractor to restoration contractors. Um, a lot of times they just want to be able to hand off, uh, you know, a claim assignment to us and say, hey, uh, we need you to come in and take a look at these things. And they kind of stay out of it and, and don't want to play middleman and, and try and explain our terminology and explain our estimates to other people. So we end up usually working directly with the insured and with the adjuster. Uh, and we don't have uh, a lot of the adversarial kind of um, uh, relationships with uh, adjusters that maybe some other folks in the industry find themselves having from time to time. Um, so ultimately we're taking care of the insured and taking care of the things that are important and matter to them. But we're also facilitating the carrier's delivery uh, of their, their policy to that, uh, to that insured. So uh, if we're providing value to the restoration contractor by being a resource, if we're providing value to the insured by being able to help save what's important to them, uh, and we're also uh, doing that in a way that um, helps the adjuster to understand what needs to be done and, and how that can be delivered, I think everybody wins. Um, so we look at kind of this more of as a group of clients on a project rather than just any one customer. Um, I think part of the growth in um, contents, uh, you know, there, there are folks that uh, see an opportunity to do a wide range of different content types. Uh, and sometimes art will fall into that category for a contents restorer. Uh, for true conservation, there's a very high barrier to entry uh, from a number of different standpoints. One is the education side. Um, we're a vendor into the industry, much like a lot of the dry cleaners, but we're so specialized that in our staff, our folks have uh, master's degrees in painting conservation if they're going to work on paintings. Uh, we have folks who have a master's degree in just books and paper. Uh, so it's very specific in terms of uh, the disciplines that are studied and uh, the folks that work on these different items, they spend, uh, you know, 
two years post-grad education at a minimum. And then there's a lot of ongoing education. There's a lot of equipment that's involved. There's a lot of analysis tools that we use that are, are fairly expensive and complicated, a lot of chemistry. Uh, so as I see um, smaller operations starting to pop up in saying that they offer uh, similar services to us, uh, I can't help but notice that some of the growth is fueled by just an awareness that these things can be done. Uh, also, the demand from uh, homeowners to say, hey, this is important, can you save it? Uh, and then there's the, the folks that say, well, you know, how hard can it be? We'll, we'll watch a YouTube video, and uh, I saw one where you can use an old piece of bread to clean a painting. Uh, so I think there's... Um, a lot of opportunity out there for more people like us to, to service those who need these types of services. Uh, it's important that it be done correctly and be done well uh, and from an ethical standpoint. Um, but I think the awareness in the industry is starting to move towards we, we need people who are specialized in the certain specialty things that we deal with. So whether it's furniture or electronics or textiles, um, there's always going to be room for people that are, that are good at their, uh, their area of focus and can deliver real value to folks. And just want to note that the uh, photos John is putting up were sent to us by Ben. These are actually his, his folks, I believe, doing some uh, conservation work. So very, very nice. Cliff, let me turn it back over to you for the next question. Okay. Um, I think at, at this particular point, um, let's just talk about hazards a little bit. Uh, hazards, uh, the risk to employees. Uh, what sort of contaminants uh, are you asked to remove, Ben? What are some of the most hazardous things that you've been asked to remove from fine arts and so on and so forth? So uh, microbial growth is pretty common uh, after a water loss. Uh, we see asbestos. We see lead-based paints. Uh, so we see a lot of the same things that, uh, you know, that Mike is seeing and dealing with. Um, you know, I think there's always going to be risk involved. Uh, we try to be pretty diligent about our PPE use and being aware of job, you know, job site hazards. Uh, certainly in-house, we take some uh, steps to kind of minimize exposure to solvents and uh, some pretty nasty chemicals that can be used sometimes. So extraction and ventilation are really important. Um, Pre-cleaning, setting up temporary containment uh, is important for a lot of the pre-cleaning that we'll do on site so that we avoid cross-contamination. Um, but, yeah, we take safety very seriously, and uh, we always look to the experts uh, that we're working with uh, to advise us on, on what we're walking into uh, because the contractors are going to have a much better picture of what's there and what's happening, and the information that they provide to us helps us to, uh, to, to be aware and to be safe. Um, Mike, anything you'd like to add to that? Um, oh, like, like Ben just said, um, uh, we, we deal with an awful lot of not only the contaminants that come off of the pieces that we're working with, but also the, um, the, the different chemicals and solvents that we use in our, in our uh, restoration procedure. Um, we have an ongoing uh, program with the uh, Michigan, it's called MyOSHA, uh, and they've, they've been into our plant several times and they, they walk through and, you know, when you hear something like that, that, you know, OSHA is coming through your plant, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people start whispering and they start gasping and all the other things that they deem are going to be bad news for you. But, um, in reality, what they, what they are is, um, uh, they're, they're, a, they're a watchdog, but they're, they're there to help you. And, and we've got a protocol with them that they stop in every, every so often and, and they make 
suggestions as to how we can better do our job when it comes to uh, uh, hazardous materials and things like that. So, um, so we, we make sure that our, our people are protected. Uh, we, we follow their guidelines. We use the right uh, PPE, uh, both in the, uh, in the plant and in the home. Um, we, we rely on protocols of uh, you know, indoor air quality people and things like that. And um, so we're, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're guided in a lot of times, especially in the on, on-site uh, packouts and stuff like that, to protect our people. And, and we take that very seriously um, because, you know, we don't, want, we don't want any of our people being, uh, you know, exposed to any of these um, uh, hazards uh, while under, under our watch, that's for sure. So uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing, and, and it, it, the uh, education levels get better, and, and, and we're, we're able to, um, you know, do more and more for our, um, for our people. But it's important that you, you take advantage of the, uh, um, the, the programs that are, that, are, um, that are there for you, you know, to, uh, to help you and not look at things as a negative always. Understood. All right, Cliff, um, I, before we go over and talk a little more about the, uh, the upcoming event, I, there is one question on here that I thought I'd really like to ask both of you guys, and that is, um, and I may reword it just a bit, what, what, what's the most expensive and, unu- or, and or unusual uh, content that you guys have had to clean and work with, and, and was it profitable for you? Start with Mike. Yeah, we get we get some pretty strange stuff. Um, we've had a lot of uh, uh, masters paintings and things like that, uh, Picasso's, Rembrandt's, things like that. That um, we do have a, a gentleman here in Detroit who's a conservator that we send all the really really high end things to. Uh, but um, we also get different museum pieces as far as furniture and things like that, and and we have to write uh, protocols and procedures as to how we're going to do these jobs before we even start them so that we're uh, being as true to the, uh, um, the uh, original build of the, of the piece as, as possible. Um, but I think one of, the, one of the coolest things we ever did was um, it was a water, water damage and we, we ended up with uh, uh, Arnold Palmer's 1964 master's jacket, the green hmm. jacket that, that, that was, um, the guy got it at an auction. So that, that was pretty cool. Very cool. Ben? By the way, Ben, we've got a photo up now. I don't know if you can see it of uh, one of the pictures you sent us. That looks like a fairly expensive piece, possibly. Yeah, so this is pre-ban uh, ivory carving. Uh, they're actually uh, urns. Uh, and so when uh, so the one on the left has been treated, the one on the right uh, as it came out of the house. Um, and these had ashes on the inside, but they were not from the fire. So they had go a lot of trouble to make sure that we were removing what wasn't supposed to be there and not removing anything that was supposed to be there. So uh, an interesting uh, challenge, but um, hard to put a price on ivory is it's illegal to, to sell. Uh, but uh, so something like this is, is essentially um, impossible to replace. Uh, we see a lot of really interesting things uh, from sports memorabilia, like Mike mentioned. Uh, we've done some work for some, some major, major, uh, uh, sports and music stars, and so it's always cool to see the things that they've collected over the years, as well as some of the people of their own kind of career uh, history. Um, 
from a value side, we, we have paintings that come in that were paint by number that were done by someone's grandmother. Uh, we have uh, pieces that come in that are in the millions of dollars. So it's a pretty wide range there. Um, a lot of things have historical value. The document that you have up now is a um, post-revolutionary uh, war land grant, or I'm sorry, pre-revolutionary war land grant here in South Carolina that had been folded up and put in a footlocker in someone's uh, attic for years and years and years. So uh, sometimes the value is not always super high on the monetary side, but being able to see history through the lens of, of contents restoration and, and especially things like this is, is always really interesting if you like that sort of thing. Uh, and you can't see it in this photo, but in the top left where the, the signers to the document have signed it, uh, the person who was receiving this was actually illiterate and made their mark with an X. Uh, sure. and think, seeing things like that, I think, is really, really cool. It's a, a far cry from the contracts we use today on a job site, but... Um, but you never know what's going to be there when the phone rings. That's for sure. Very cool, Ben. Uh, hey, by the way, I, it looks like we do have Sean. Uh, as listeners may know, Jay Van Dusen, the uh, chair of the RIA's Contents Council, was going to participate, but be uh, being in Maryland's coastal region, he was affected by Hurricane Florence. So longtime content council member Sean Silliman has agreed to fill in for Jay uh, before bringing Sean on, I want to give a little overview and inform our listeners of the highlights of RIA's Content Summit this fall, which is dovetailing off of the CLS course Mike O'Donnell has spoken about earlier. Uh, let me give you a quick introduction. Sean is a second-generation restoration contractor and owner of First Restoration Services in Fletcher, North Carolina, Uh FRS of Asheville, located in Western North Carolina, is a family-owned business started by Sean's father, Chris Stillman, in 1987. Uh, FRS is a DKI network company and longtime RIA member. Sean is an RIA certified restorer and water loss specialist. Asheville, located inland, although not affected by a direct Florence uh, hit, is still going to be pounded and heavy rains and winds, so we appreciate you joining us, Sean. We have you on the line. Yes, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, welcome to IAQ Radio, and thanks for joining us. Can you take a minute or two and tell listeners about the upcoming Content Summit and why they might consider visiting the uh, Motor City this fall for the uh, venue of the event? All right, well, it's a two-day event, um, and basically each day is the same. One day, or, sorry, one track will be held at the hotel, and the other one will be held at Mike's facility. Um, the track that's held at the hotel will be basically as you think it would be with speakers and um, group time networking, roundtable discussions, and then the other track will be held at Mike's for some hands-on training. So it's really the best of all worlds, having um, technician training, manager training, owner training. Um, and I think we have probably the best lineup we've had yet um, as far as an all-around council um, conference or summit, I guess it is, um, just the training is it meets meets all level. Any anybody any business out there could get something from this, no matter who they send. They're oh, uh, okay. I'm unmuted. This sounds like they're moving things around behind you. There, Sean, Pete. I want to have you jump in here. Anything you'd like to add, or any comments or questions from anything today? 
No, Sean, Sean done common. I think uh, this, uh, you know, RAA has done over the years, we've done three, 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 four contents events. We did the very first one probably in the early 2000s. And then for a couple of years back to back where we did them about six, seven years ago, one of them in particular, I remember, was in New Jersey. And we had some of the local members did little tours of work that they had done after the 9-11 cleanup. That, that was very, very exciting. I think they, the whole Contents Council has really pushed it to the next level now with um, uh, bringing it into uh, to Mike's facility and kind of breaking it up, you know, one day at the hotel or one day there so that they put their hands on a lecture format, uh, you know, support of the sponsors, and then they get a little time to have some socializing and personal time. Of course, it's held in a casino downtown Detroit, so that is what it is. Um, so anyway, if, if Sean was done, one of the things I think before we move into the roundup and close the show out, uh, I think it might be helpful if Mike took just a minute or two to uh, talk about the Contents Law Specialist Program, which the inaugural program is being rolled out at his place uh, in October before the Content Summit, and, um, you know, why it's important in uh, the evolution, really, of uh, developing, and you know, competency and certification for people at a higher level in the industry. So if you threw it over to Mike just to give us a little short overview of what people could expect. I know we have uh, some of our members from Australia coming over, and um, I think it's going to be pretty exciting. I'm going to be on a road trip, and I'm going to try to stop in, and if I can't stay for the whole day to visit Mike's facility, I'm looking forward to trying to do that. So uh, anyway, I'd suggest that before you move into the roundup. All right, Mike. Yeah. Um, The CLS was, was, um, uh, I'm not going to say a brain... uh, um, uh, I don't know the word I want to use, but it, it was it's, it's an idea that was formulated a long time ago to bring some uh, standards and some uh, systematic uh, uh, training to the to the contents industry, which uh, a lot of people have uh, dubbed it the wild wild west. You know, being as there's no rules, there's no um, there's no certifications, there's there's nothing that really governs the the, the contents restoration uh, industry. Everybody, you know, if you got a if you've got a couple of two by fours, a sawhorse, and a and a bucket of water, you're a content specialist, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a little more than that. Um, as as the guys who've gotten into it and, and you know invested you know millions of dollars into facilities and 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 training and things like that to 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 do the proper job for for uh, for their customers um, will attest to it's it's just it needed something to to. Put a put a brand or a certificate or a certification on it, and the CLS was 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 brought up, and it was I was asked last uh, November if uh, if I could uh, if I would you know chair the the committee for uh, for this, and I, I said yes, and it turned into a part time job, um, and it, uh, it but it but it's done, and we're ready to to roll it out, and we're going to have the. The, uh, uh, the the first class is going to be right there at uh, uh, I think the, the actual class is at the hotel, but then they're all going to come over to our place here, and they're going to get a hands-on view of the in in conjunction with the summit. But um, it, it's really really comprehensive. It, I mean, it's it's A to Z. Um, anything that's been written before um, is incorporated into it. There's a lot of the uh, um, the uh, um, Book of Knowledge from the uh, from the previous um, uh, 
uh, RMA uh, attempt at, at contents, which was a lot of it was still very much, uh, uh, you know, appropriate for, for what we're doing now. But then there's just all the new stuff. There's, there's uh, you know, specialty contents cleaning. There's regular contents cleaning. There's, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's how to pack a truck. There's, you know, all the things that go into contents other than just packing a box at a, at a Oops. Did we lose him? Lost Mike there. He's back. Yeah, safety, health and safety issues in it. Uh, chemicals, uh, branding. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really comprehensive program, and, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it, anybody who signs up to take it. There are some prerequisites that you got to have before you do it, which you know, only makes sense because this is a, it's a pretty high-level um uh, certification. So we want to make sure that the people that earn it really do earn it, and that they're they're able to uh, uh, go out and and use the material that that they're doing. And we're hoping for um, you know, as many people as as can possibly get this certification to get it because it's going to bring a a real um, systematic approach to the to the contents industry. You know, so I think it's going to be great. Well, thanks. Thank you, Mike. And uh, Sean, uh, uh, before we go to our final questions, did you want to add anything? Oh, do we still have Sean on? John? Sorry, I was muted. That's all right, buddy. Anything you'd like to add before we roll into the uh, last couple of questions we have here? Um, I just asked Pete this, but um, the CLS is a prerequisite for the CR now. So... Um, going forward, if you want to be a CR, it's something you would want to look into pretty seriously. But um, being on the council for as long as I have, I think that the the training in the CLS is just it's it's amazing what what you can learn, especially I mean just moving forward. It's not it's moving quickly out of the wild west and into a uh, polished art of no more buckets and rags. So um, if you're serious about contents cleaning in this industry the cls is definitely needed well thank you and thanks for joining us sean let's let's go to the roundup it's going to be a quick one today we're running a little over uh i don't know john if you even have any music ready no let's just do it um i've got a final question cliff do you have any final questions yeah i do i do have go, one. Ahead, you go first and i'll finish it up unless pete has something okay uh this is going I, i'm going to ask the same question to both ben and, and mike um, you know, for ethical reasons, physicians charge the super rich and the middle class the same price for a medical procedure. Does the value of the item you're working on or does the owner's ability to pay uh, ever affect your price? Can I uh, step in on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, the uh, owner's ability to pay means nothing to me, Okay. Uh, if you have the piece and you want it restored, here's the price. I don't care if you're, you know, John D. Rockefeller or you're, you know, a guy working on the line in, at uh, Ford Motor. It, it's the same price. But the quality of the piece does make a difference because you're, you're, you're dealing with something that is uh, the really, really high-end things. Are, are, are they're, they're more complicated to work on. They're typically built better. They're typically put together better. They're harder to disassemble. So yeah, it, it absolutely does make a difference when, when you're talking quality. But, but as far as uh, you know, the ability to pay, no, 
in, in my opinion, makes no difference at all. Uh, just just a response to that, but couldn't qual- but w- sometimes wouldn't good quality make something easier to clean or not? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, because there's there's more there's more pieces to it usually, and I'm talking about mostly just furniture, and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll you know throw in like say a, a high ball a high boy from the 17th century, you know that the joints are hand done. So you got you know they're they're typically not, and they're they're put together with a different type of glue that has up all these years. So you know, there's different ways of taking it apart. You can't just take a rubber mallet and start pounding on it. Mm-hmm. You've really got to start maybe dissolving the glue before you start you know doing that. Otherwise, you're gonna have splinters. So yeah, so typically the better stuff is a little hard to take apart if you, especially when you've got loose pieces or or you, you need to do some restoration work on another area. And in order to get to that area, you've got to go through, you know, um, through, through a, a, a different area of the, of the piece to, to be able to do your work. So yeah, uh, it, it, the quality, usually it makes a difference. Okay. Ben, same question. For you, ben. Go ahead. Ben, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I would agree with everything Mike has said. I think, you know, certainly uh, with higher priced uh, items, you know, from a higher uh, replacement cost value, uh, there's more of a room for a budget to do more of the extensive work so uh, and still be cost effective. Um, I have known people in our industry to charge a fraction of what they think the replacement value is. Um, that does not fit with our uh, outlook or our ethics. Uh, so it is a straight time and materials. Uh, and that could be a hundred dollar item or it could be a hundred thousand dollar item. Um, but the higher quality pieces, having that room in the budget, uh, to where we can do what needs to be done, do it properly, do it well, and still be cost effective. Uh, it always makes it a little easier on us. Um, there have been a few times where we have donated services to those that couldn't afford to pay. Um, in, in a family where they lost both of their sons, we decided to, to go ahead and clean some of the family photos and clean some of the family uh, albums for them because they just didn't have the coverage to do it. And uh, we would have appreciated that if someone had done it for us. So there are times where we will uh, we'll help people out just because we feel like it's the right thing to do. But uh, otherwise, the price is the price, like Mike said. Just one quick follow-up uh, to both you and Mike. Um, I think standard insurance policies within the restoration industry would not insure the item that you're working on unless you are negligent. Do you have special insurance that insures the item that you're working on, you know, in the event that you would damage it? Not sure. a negligence. Okay. Sure. Yeah. We have uh, all the general liability coverage, but we also have some special art coverage and some Baileys that cover us. If we trip and fall in the front yard and drop a painting, uh, we're covered. If we run off the road uh, on the interstate uh, and wreck the van, uh, we're covered. So uh, we try to limit our exposure. We've never had to make a claim, fortunately, uh, but you never know what can happen in our industry. You know, you've got to have coverage just about every angle something could come at you from. So they do ensure your workmanship, you know, someone's working on it and they use the wrong solvent and uh, something like that. Um, Yeah. So if we made a mistake and we ruined something, uh, I believe we would be covered. Uh, We take a lot of uh, precautions to make sure we're not doing that. Uh, Obviously we've never had that happen in the past. Um, You know, there have been some incidents where, um, 
we've had to undo previous workmanship that wasn't very high quality. Um, so that sometimes makes our job a little bit tougher. Uh, at least we're in the business of fixing things, but fortunately we're not having to fix any of our mistakes yet. Okay, Mike, uh, any, any comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, of the, one of the advantages that full restoration companies have, and, you know, Ben just kind of ste- uh, mentioned it you know, very, very briefly, is that um, sometimes when there's an issue – you can fix it before it goes back. And as long as you got a really good restoration company and a good quality craftsman working on it, um, you know, you're basically nobody ever knows the difference. But, um, uh, you know, and I'm not saying we're trying to hide something, but uh, the truth be known that, that it's like that can happen. So, no, we don't have those issues at all. But as far as insurance coverages, yes, we are fully, fully covered. Our policies are built around our business, their specialty policies that you know that uh, uh, are, are made for property of others for you know uh, uh, corporate liability you know all kinds of different policies that you have to have in order just to do this business and, and so it's um uh you know it's a um it, it's an ongoing thing because you know things change so much that uh, and, the, and the policies change and things like that. So, and uh, if I could just throw in a little, little plug here is that one of the, one of the things we have at the, uh, um, at the summit coming up is we do have a, a gentleman coming and speak and he's, he's got a new product, a new insurance product that he's, that's designed specifically for the contents industry. And it's, it's a full, co- uh, full replacement cost uh, Bailey's insurance coverage. And it's never been done before. Uh, most of if you look at your policies, you know, the restorers that are out there, look at your policies, they're all ACV, which could leave you hanging pretty badly if you get into like that truck that goes off the road. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it's ACV and you're, and you're responsible for the rest. So, you know, your insurance company may be only responsible for 25 or 30 percent of the loss, you know, depending on what, what your policy reads. So this is a true uh, replacement cost um, uh, product. So uh, that's one of the things that we're going to be uh, uh, delving into at the at the summit. So it's, it's it's really worth it for people to come on out. All right, um, Pete. Any final thoughts before we wrap things up? Yeah. Thanks, Joe. So um, I ha- I have a question for Mike, and then just a couple comments, and I'll turn it over to you. So Mike and and Cliff, this lends to. Uh, some of the interview questions that we had before the show, and I know it was on your mind, and I don't think you asked it. One of the questions, Mike, I have for you is I'd like you to comment for the audience on the impact that you think the contents restoration industry has with um, these companies that, uh, you know, make these pod units, and there's, there's more than one of them, you know, the 800 pack out all this, because they've been advertising at the REA shows and other industry shows, uh, some of the trainers in the industries have made deals with them. You know, we see them out there a lot. And, you know, although I think that they that they, they also serve just a general consumer market, they've really kind of come on board with the uh, restoration guys, which allows them to deal with uh, doing a lot more contents cleaning on site, all right, versus everything being packed out and taken to a, a facility. And this affects potential cost. Uh, customer comfort. Sometimes they just like to see the stuff that it's close and they can get to it. Of course, you have other things that impact that uh, may or may not be humidity controlled. So the contents can be, be affected by that. And um, 
you know, just comment on what your thoughts are on that. And Ben, if you had comments, certainly you kind of kind of weigh in too. But I kind of think maybe it'd be up on more into Mike's wheelhouse, and then I make a few comments. Hello. Yeah, Mike. Okay, because somebody just called in on my phone. So, anyway, um, yeah, to answer Pete's question, um, I'm not a real fan of, of pods, or, or and I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that they're you know bad or anything. I'm just I'm not a real fan of of that type of storage. Okay, and there, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, if you're storing it on, if if you've got to pack it out of the house, then you're responsible for that stuff. Okay. Uh, the minute you, you touch it, you're responsible for it, whether it breaks or whatever. If you put it into a self-contained storage unit on, on site um, and you walk away from it for three or four months and all of a sudden somebody's gone in there and, you know, they got, they're getting some stuff out because they need it or whatever, and then at the end of the job it shows up missing because one person didn't tell the other person that they took it out, and now you've got an issue of, of uh, custody and control. So, you know, you can sign all the waivers you want, but the bottom line is, well, you touched it last. Well, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I mean, when you're out of, out of sight, out of mind, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough uh, argument to have. So that's one of the reasons. The other reason you brought up, Pete, was the humidity issues, especially in states like in the northern states where, um, where you have the, the temperature fluctuations, where you, you know, like up here now it's, it's 80 degrees in the, in the, in the uh, daytime and it's uh, 60 degrees at night. Well, that causes humidity. Dew, things like that. Um, it causes humidity inside those units too. And if you've got an issue where you, these items are already exposed to, you know, a mold situation, you know, maybe they're not real bad, but you know, mold is airborne. So, um, you know, it could be, and it could could make it worse as opposed to bringing it into a uh, a, a, a secure and, you know, climate-controlled um, environment. Okay. Ben, any final thoughts? No, I'd, I'd agree with that. We do some on-site cleaning, but therefore more for murals or, or super large chandeliers that's easier to clean on-site than to try and take off-site. Um, you know, the other, the other side of things is it, if you can get things out of the way while construction work is going on, there's a whole lot less risk to the contents and to those items if they're off-site and in a secure climate-controlled facility. Um, and providing that inventory that we talked about earlier uh, helps to provide a little peace of mind because at least they know what's what and where it is and who's got who's got it if they need to come and get something. So, Thank you. Hey, we're running way over. Pete, any final quick comments? Yeah, now nah, just do a quick wrap-up. I, I, first of all, I just want to thank Mike and Ben, uh, you know, for uh, all the effort and everything they, they put in uh, to, to make this show really interesting and informative. Specifically want to thank Mike for all the hard uh, volunteer work that him and all the contents guys have put in, the leadership of, of Jay heading up to council, Sean, all his years of service, and a lot of other guys. Um, uh, I think they've, uh, I think they, they really got, uh, got something, and I think it's really going to help kind of bring this whole contents thing together. The only final comment I want to say is, and this kind of dovetails with uh, with the comments that Sean made. So the, uh, uh, Mike called it the body and knowledge, um, or he used some term, but it's the certified restorer body and knowledge that REA put out uh, is the plan, and we're in development now for kind of the restructuring of uh, all the certification programs. And the CLS uh, is one leg or pillar, a cornerstone pillar. The longstanding WLS is another. Uh, and uh, that's up being updated. 
Next year, they have planned for the fire and smoke segment, which is uh, kind of more of the interior cleaning, if you would, and restoration. And then the final leg, possibly the year after, is the environmental restoration angle. And uh, those four together eventually are the pillars that will hold up the CR program. So it's uh, so uh, like kind of Sean was saying, people that are interested in pursuing that now uh, in uh, kind of the, the new generation now that the body and knowledge is out, these cornerstone programs are not only a requirement, but what we feel is a lot of people who specialize in one area who may not want to have the CR, they can be qualified as competent, like Mike said, in that particular area, because that's the specialty, uh, similar to the WLS role in the, in the program for all the years that it had. So anyway, um, I thank you all, and uh, I'll turn it back over to you, Joe. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you to, to uh, Mike O'Donnell, uh, Ben Umberger, uh, Sean, uh, Sean, Sean, Silliman. Silliman. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Cliff. I'm losing track of myself here. Uh, and, of course, to uh, my engineer at the controls, John, you got to have faith. To the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and, of course, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog. Thanks for your help again this week, buddy. And uh, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, next week we've got Karen Dana Miller from The Ohio State University. We're going to talk to her about some excellent research she's been doing on relative humidity and soft goods like carpet and how they are affected uh, with respect to microbiology and uh, biological organisms. Looking forward to another great show. So come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.